Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success. We keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing marketing and technology ecosystem. My name is Xander Gosta, Director of Marketing at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host, Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest. I am Maggie Knight. Nice to meet you all of you. Great. Maggie. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to have you this week. It's my pleasure to be here. It's really nice to join this uh, podcast. Okay, great. Well, we're very excited to have you on and talk about a non-metaverse topic for our main segment for one. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but first, our first segment is Industry Insights, where we do a deep dive in industry news. A few interesting articles today, sort of a big one um, to start off with. I'll try and keep this brief, but it is a lot to cover. The first article is called Adapting Ahead of Regulations, a Principled Approach to the App Store. This is a Microsoft blog article. Here's a quote. Today, we are announcing a set of new a new set of open app store principles that will apply to the Microsoft Store on Windows and to next generation marketplace and to next generation marketplaces we will be building for games. We have developed these principles in part to address Microsoft's growing role and responsibility as we start the process of seeking regulatory approval in capitals around the world for acquisition of Activision Blizzard. These principles are grounded in app store regulation and are being considered by governments around the world, including US, EU, Korea, Netherlands, and elsewhere. Okay, so um, basically what this is, is Microsoft explaining how they intend to regulate the app store moving forward. It's broken into four segments, uh, quality, safety, and privacy. First one is quality, safety, security, privacy. Second one, accountability. Third one, fairness and transparency. And fourth is developer choice. So here are a few of the highlights. Um, and this is sort of the key one. This is one of their principles. We will hold our own app to the same standards of competing apps. Uh, and that's sort of the crux that all the other uh, regulation, the principles sort of are around, but let me give you a couple of the other ones. Um, we will not use any non-public information for or data from our apps to compete with developer apps. We will treat our apps equally in the app store without unreasonably preferencing or ranking our apps over others. We will not require developers in the app store to use our payment system to process in-app payments. And there are a few other promises around specifics of how in-app payment, um, that they won't base, they won't bias other, their payment system over others. So. Basically, if we sort of like look at, take a step back and look at all the different principles in Argit, what they're saying is they're not going to privilege, use their privileged position as a platform to advantage their app business, which is obviously not something that a lot of their competitors are doing. Uh, Apple being the most obvious example. Um, they, <laughs> they also claim that they will not in-house any Activision content to be exclusive for Microsoft. Okay, so what does that mean? That's a lot of stuff. What does it mean? Uh, in a time of pretty intense regulatory scrutiny for big tech, Microsoft is establishing a regulatory friendly position, which grants them grants regulatory agencies a permission structure to allow the deal to be approved. And also it's a huge uh, shot across the bow for Apple um, because Apple has been claiming for a while that sort of the closed security of their app store is their secret sauce. And this gives uh, the regulators and a, a permission structure to say, hey, Apple, that's bullshit. Look at what Microsoft is doing. Um, so I think it's pretty masterful corporate maneuvering. maneuvering and it's, a, the, uh, you know, I think they've enabled, this has been enabled by their 20 years of antitrust regulations. Uh, which has really made them masters of understanding how to use uh, regulations as an advantage to them. Also, I will say, uh, since all I do is show my own stock, I do hold some Microsoft stock, but I don't think that's affecting my analysis <laughs> here at all. Um, anyway, uh, what do you guys think? It's kind of a big deal, huh? Yeah, this is super interesting. I mean, uh, one thing that uh, that has, I think, historically separated Microsoft out from 
um, you know, App Apple, Google, Facebook, and, and some of the other larger tech firms is uh, they have largely avoided the public scrutiny, scrutiny and, and regulation uh, of a lot of their competitors. And Windows. Since the antitrust windows show stuff, right? Right, yeah. true, true, true. <laughs> um, but this is interesting because they're sort of preemptively saying like, okay, what are the things that are likely to kill this deal? Um, and how can we address them preemptively while simultaneously uh, snubbing Apple for, uh, and, and Google to both to different degrees and with different, you know, with different combinations of, of these um, these items for essentially having practices that, that Microsoft is arguing like like a, a, bus a business doesn't need to have in order to have like a viable uh, viable marketplace. So I, I mean, I think this is a great move. This is great for for consumers, for 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 gamers if they do this, and hopefully this helps move uh, uh, move the range of like what is acceptable for the other platforms too. So I, I mean, I'm all for everything that I, I see in this. Um, I, I'm looking for something to be upset about, and I'm not finding it. <laughs> Maggie, what are your what are your thoughts on the, on this uh, positioning from uh, from Microsoft? I think that is amazing. I have to say like a lot more developers, uh, no matter it's from gaming or apps in particular as well, they're looking into expanding their presence beyond the Apple Store and Google Store. We know how right. the two stores have, they have basically monopoly or duopoly, yep. right? And um, you know, having more platforms engaging with more users and more choices for developers, that's a great news for anyone in the mobile industry. And I would say Apple and Google, they need to watch this out. Otherwise they will be haha, not being the monopoly or duopoly anymore in the market industry. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, it's exciting. I mean, we'll see how this shakes out. Obviously at the end of the day, it falls to regulators. And so that'll be uh, interesting to see. But I think what they're really doing is like, they're giving themselves the advantage to use regulation as a tool for their business, which you know, not only only the most sophisticated lobbyist companies are able to do. So, I mean, go to, go to Microsoft, um, right? And it also is them sort of controlling the narrative in terms of um, yeah, of what potentially gets approved. If they can come to uh, any you know, if 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 they can come to uh, Congress or whoever whoever else is involved in this and basically say like, look, we 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 know the concerns. We're addressing these concerns. We've already taken actions A, B, C, and D. I think it's much more likely to get approved and to get approved on their terms. Yeah, and I I only I had to pull I had to edit so much out of that snippet that I just read. To you, so I really because <laughs> it's, it's so much is on in the same. Definitely definitely recommend reading it in, in the link of the blog post when we post it as well because it's really it's really interesting. All right, on to the next topic. Cool. So yeah, up top, we joked that we we're excited to have Maggie in here for a non-metaverse uh, uh, main topic, but uh, the metaverse is still is still going to be on here today. So th uh, this week, we have two stories in the topic of boomer companies uh, joining the metaverse, uh, both pretty notable, um, arguably. So the first one is article from The Verge. Disney has appointed a leader for its metaverse strategy. Uh, Disney is appointing an executive to head up its metaverse plans, according to a memo. CEO Bob Chapik sent to employees. Uh, Mike White, who previously held the title of SVP Consumer Experiences and Platforms, will now be SVP of Next Generation Storytelling and Consumer Experiences. That's a mouthful of a job title. Uh, Chapik signaled Disney's intentions to get involved with the metaverse during, during its earnings call in November and again during its earnings last week, though the company's plans have been vague. But even if Disney's strategy is still unclear, given its huge stable of franchises and its willingness to put them into physical world, such as theme parks and digital formats, 
including movies, TV shows, video games. It's not hard to imagine why Disney is seriously exploring some kind of metaverse play. Okay, cool. So uh, no one agrees what the metaverse actually is, but I think <laughs> there is a huge case to be made that potentially Disney is like the OG metaverse, right? I mean, if the real you life think metaverse. about it, yeah, like if you think about what they've done with their franchises, what it means to, and what it means to even go to uh, a Disney theme park, like this is, you know, one interpretation of what it means to have a metaverse and like, you know, characters uh, from and assets from one world cross pollinating into, into other worlds. Um, so arguably like Disney has been doing primitive versions of, of metaverse for, for decades now. And even on a digital side, uh, you think about a franchise like Kingdom Hearts is also exploring, you know, mixing IPs um, uh, and assets from from one world into like cross world experiences. So I think it's I think it's interesting. I think as far as like boomer companies adapting or legacy companies adapting to quote unquote metaverse era, like Disney is well positioned compared to others. And they've also shown, I think, for um, a legacy company an amazing ability to adapt, which you usually mm -hmm. don't see uh, companies of, uh, you know, of that scale. But I mean, Disney has managed to be relevant and top of mind in all things entertainment for decades and decades now. And I don't expect that to stop. Um, and my last thought here is like, when I think about Disney's take on a metaverse, I don't think it's gonna be like blockchain and crypto. I, I think it's gonna be about the power of their IPs showing up uh, and mixing in uh, unexpected and exciting new ways. Um, Maggie, why don't we go to, to you here first? Um, what is your take on uh, Disney's potential moves in the metaverse? I would say <clears throat> Disney is a very innovative idea company in all sorts of ways, especially like utilizing their IPs, marketing, whatever they have. So it's it is an amazing showcase to a lot of companies what they can do with metaverse how they want to enter the market, how they want to think about this strategically from a business perspective. Because a lot of us might have a metaverse, metaverse um, thinking about, oh, it's a, you know, it's a personal experience, we can go in as a user. But Disney, what they did there is actually showcasing, you can actually enter that as a business, thinking about the opportunities, the commercial opportunities you can have there. And that is such an amazing move and showcasing to the rest of the world Maybe we should start thinking about that, not only as an immersive experience, but opportunities for business to grow, to think about what are the next steps for our reality. Yeah, I agree. Xander, I know you've historically been pretty bullish on, on Disney since I've known you. Like, what, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on like this next this next era for Disney? Yeah, and more of Xander showing his own stock. So yeah, another, another big holding <laughs> I'm mind. helping you out here, buddy. <laughs> um, so, I mean, these guys are masters in verticalization of content, right? And so everything from the movies, TV shows, um, the theme parks, obviously now Disney Plus is the second largest streaming service in the West. Uh, I think almost 180 million subscribers, something crazy that they basically caught up to Netflix in, in two years. And so I don't think we should really, I don't think you have the opportunity to discount the quality of this, of this business. I think the thing that is kind of interesting here is they've uh, historically not had any ability to produce video games in-house. And that has been um, sort of a, a, a weak point for them. They basically outsourced their IP and they haven't had any uh, in-house video game development studios as far as I know. And so what that means is like, this isn't a muscle that they're used to flexing. And so I'm curious to see if their metaverse looks anything like traditional, what we traditionally think about a metaverse, like 
uh, virtual 3D space, how are they going to in-house the expertise in order to really make this a reality? I think the thing that we should say is like they didn't necessarily have the expertise for um, a streaming service either a couple years ago, and they've really they built out that really robust system internally. And so I imagine that's what we should expect. I mean, I, I expect basically Microsoft uh, they're going to what's they're going to develop what is going to be an essentially video game development capabilities, I think, inside of uh, Disney, if their experience with Disney Plus is any uh, is any indicator. So curious to see how that evolves. Very bullish on this company. Uh, bye. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing I'm thinking about, too, is um, what will be Disney's take on what we see as sort of like the, the when, when, when people think about Metaverse today, they're thinking of, of companies like Sandbox and, and Decentraland. Mm -hmm. um, what is Disney's take going to be there? Like, like, do we see them potentially uh, making a meaningful play in these spaces, or do we see them? I mean, if anyone was ever, when we think about what you do in in an ecosystem like Decentraland, or or uh, you, you are going in and it's basically like a digital theme park in mm -hmm. a way. Like you're going in and there's there's different areas, different experiences, um, uh, different social interactions. So it would be very interesting, and I have to think that there's at least like some think takes going on inside Disney about like building their own digital theme park. It's gotta be, I bet you it's fully, fully owned and integrated. I bet you they built basically Disney, Disney, the game, right. But like as a, as a metaverse, yeah. massive quotation marks. Super interesting. So, okay, let's go to our other uh, legacy companies going to the metaverse story. Uh, this one is from Coindesk. Uh, JP Morgan is the first bank into the metaverse looks at business Sweet. opportunities. <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, we can go to an ATM in the metaverse. Um, okay, so JP, here's some poll quotes. Uh, JP Morgan, the lar largest bank in the US, said it has become the first lender to arrive in the metaverse, having opened a lounge in Decentraland, a virtual world based on blockchain, blockchain technology, uh, as well as the unveiling of the Onyx Lounge. Uh, the name refers to the bank's suite of permissioned Ethereum-based services. JP Morgan also released a white paper exploring how businesses can find opportunities in the meta metaverse. Okay, so here's the angle. Uh, and here's one more poll quote. Um, in time, from JP Morgan, uh, in time, the virtual real estate market could start seeing services much like in the physical world, including credit, mortgages, and rental agreements, Great. said JP Morgan, said the JP Morgan report. It added that decentralized finance, uh, DeFi, collateral management could well come into play and that rather than traditional finance companies, uh, this could be done by uh, DAOs. Uh, so what does this mean? So uh, I don't think this is like a highly uh, functional <laughs> uh, construct in the metaverse from, from JP Morgan. This is, this is a PR stunt to promote their right. white paper. Um, you know, no one's going into the metaverse in order so they can hang out in bank lobby, right? <laughs> um, but what, so this this is actually important though for a few reasons. So, I mean, first, um, just to you know preserve their own relevancy, like the banks need to. Uh, this is the hot space, right? For for the year, probably for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, and banks need to give their customers confidence that they are tracking the space, that they can safely keep their money with them, and they're not going to you know miss out on. Uh, financial opportunity that like, no, we, we got this, we're, we're in the metaverse also, just trust us with your funds. I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think this is also notable. It's a good thing ultimately for like crypto metaverse, uh, all things blockchain, because the more it, it's a double-edged sword, the more that entities like legacy banking get involved, the more it means that there's like lobbyists with ties to Washington that have a stake in making sure that these systems can be operational and can consumers can access them. The, the other side of that sword is um, 
the more that entities like JP Morgan are involved, the more it's likely that they're going to push for like on-rail safeguards of like, if you want to access these assets come through like a trusted party like JP Morgan. Um, so that, that's kind of some of my initial thoughts on it. Uh, I don't know, Maggie, what, what are your thoughts on a, a super legacy company like JP Morgan or traditional banking um, coming more into the crypto and metaverse space? This is very interesting. I think they have a lot of things behind it besides the white paper they just published. I think they have quite a lot of um, agenda, put it this way, that they're thinking expansion they can do. Now they might be just like testing the water, see you know how it goes. It's a small investment for them. Like, right. But if they can turn that into a real opportunity as a first mover, it could be a very interesting area for them to expand. And, that's how I am thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Xander, I, I imagine you might have an opinion here. Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, I think, so, so let's, let's paint the rosy picture first. I think that like, they are a, a, the biggest wealth, you know, the biggest bank and like a major wealth, wealth management player. All the trust institutions trust them and don't understand what the crypto is and are scared of it. So if they're able to expand the pie by bringing in players who would not otherwise be in the space, right. like this could, this would ultimately be a good thing for the crypto ecosystem. Um, the one thing I will say is that like we don't want you know uh, collateralized loans in the metaverse necessarily. Like that's like what you're doing is you're basically taking all the things that are wrong with the world and bring it into digital space. And like to be clear, I expect that to happen. Like that's what's going to happen. Um, but I think when we think about what is the opportunity for digital ecosystems, thinking about buying virtual land is not the opportunity here. It's the fact that you can recreate what it means to have an economy and completely from the ground up, and it's unconstrained by the by the physical constraints of the physical world. And so if you're thinking that, oh, the thing we should do here is like have mortgages so we can have people in a, a debt cycle in the metaverse, you're completely missing the point. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I think the, the interesting stuff in the metaverse or whatever the heck you call it, uh, is going to come from income, not gonna come from incumbents, it's gonna come from new players. So it's fine, we're expanding, what they're gonna do is they're gonna expand the pie, they're gonna get legacy people in. I think that may be a good thing overall, but the, it's not what's interesting about this technology. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, I mean, you can. There's plenty of ways you can uh, get a collateralized loan through DeFi today, um, but this is like kind of like higher stakes if you're actually, um, you know, doing your mortgage through DeFi somehow. Um, I think inevitably that that will be options in the future. But yeah, I, historically, the big banks being the power players in that, like that, they if history has shown, like they don't always act with consumer interest in, in mind. Um, but yeah, I think that expanding the pie is is the, the big upside of this. Hey, Warren, can I interest you in renting my NFT? <laughs> it's like, what, why, why are we doing that? It just, I don't know, man, sorry. <laughs> Xander, I've got bad news. You can already, you can already I know, but I'm saying, I'm saying it's, a, it's because it's a digital asset. It's like, it's doing the yeah. opposite of what you, the thing about digital assets is they don't need to be scarce. And it's like, okay, let's make them scarce, why? Okay, well, there's some good arguments why, but it's like what you don't want then is to make everything scarce. I mean, the whole beauty of digital economies is that doesn't need to be scarce. Anyway. So the, the rants will be endless from both of us. Let's go on to our last story for the day. All right, um, this one, yeah, we're, we're pacing, we're going along. Um, I'll do try and do this one quickly. This is a Verge article entitled, Snap will put ads within stories and share money with our creators. A, sm a small quote, Snap is introducing a new way for creators uh, Snap is introducing a new way for creators on the app to earn money. The platform is testing a mid-roll ads that appear in the stories of a small group of US creators. When the ad is placed within the app story, the Snap star story, Snapchat will then share revenue with the creator. So uh, basically all this is to say, 
that uh, Snapchat is now testing a new ad unit. They will share some revenue of that ad unit with the creators. Uh, I think this is generally a good thing. You want to expand the amount of revenue that's being um, expanded. You basically, it, it's a similar, yeah, let me try this here. Uh, you're basically expanding the, the incentive for creators to use your platform. Ultimately, this is a retention play um, because they have a stiff competition with people like TikTok, who are now coming and eating the content creator space quite aggressively. I think one really interesting thing to call out um, from Snap's most recent earning, earning call is that they said that the majority of users are pivoting away from the stories feature, which this is helping to monetize, to the spotlight feature, which is more like TikTok. And then they're also saying that they basically, both Snap and TikTok have content sponsorship programs where they basically will pay the high, the most high volume creators some amount of money uh, in order to have them produce content for, the, uh, for their platform. Snap is planning on investing $250 million in, two, uh, in or they invested two, $250 million last year. I think this is a pretty trivial amount of money for them considering how much value they're getting out of people. Um, I think the main thing, if we just sort of take a step back, is Snap actually is a real business now, and they had it for quite a while, and it kind of like flew under the radar, I think, for a lot of companies, uh, at least from an investor perspective. But also, I mean, we use Snapchat, but it's never been like a huge portion of our overall marketing spend, except for like maybe one really specific example. Um, the one that's really interesting is they were not affected by Apple's ATT the same way that Facebook was, um, and this is because they have much broader brand advertising than performance advertising like Facebook did. And this is actually really beneficial for the most recent earnings call. So anyway, that's my, that's, that's the, what do you guys think? Yeah, Maggie, why don't we go to here, you here first? I imagine um, the, the agency side of, of feature that you guys do a fair amount of business with, with Snap. I know you focus more on the ASO side, but do you, do you have any insights from, from your company as far as like how, how Snap's role in the social platforms ecosystem, like like the increase mm -hmm. or decrease in relevance, like just sort of trends you're seeing with, with them as a company? I would say um, as a business, like we are looking at opportunities for our clients. We have been seeing social ads in general is becoming more and more important. Now people and in general users, they want to see more like user generated content rather than ads. So social media such as like, you know, not talking about Facebook, but more like um, Instagram, Snap, and also TikTok is being more and more popular among developers because they see a lot more opportunities. The engagement rate is way better than the traditional, you know, advertising channels. Um, it's a tough conversation, like do you want to pick, you know, Snap versus TikTok, or do you want to go with Instagram? That's more like a conversation around like, you know, where we want to position our brand, how we want to position our brand, but the, the relevancy of having, you know, snatch check in the portfolio of the channels you want to reach out your users, that's still very relevant. I still have a lot of clients using Snapchat, seeing good results is all about like how you want to position, what kind of users you want to reach out and how you want to, you know, get them involved through, you know, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one thing that I like about this move, um, this specific move is just an alignment of incentives mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, the the advertiser, Snap, and um, the content creator. So, you know, it, for for people that are buying the ad inventory, like 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 our team, um, ultimately there's algorithms that are, you know, that are we we make creatives, we send them into Snap and other ecosystems, and algorithms are finding essentially where. Uh, our ads can best meet the business goal, which is usually an engagement of downloading and some deeper ac action in the app. 
if the content creator's revenue, uh, if their own revenue stream is aligned with um, creating engaging content where people see, interact, and and ultimately achieve list, achieve the business goal for the advertiser, that's a virtuous uh, virtuous circle that I think is really good for the ecosystem. Does it actually pan out that way? We'll see. But in theory, I like the move. Um, one of the things I was, the thought I was stumbling on earlier was I think it actually kind of looks like play to earn, which is what is kind of funny and interesting, right? It's like you actually have people who are engaged in the economy, making money off the economy, which is what we want to see ultimately. Right. We don't want the, the gains consolidated in the corporate hegemony. So, yeah, aligned incentives are good. S speaking of play to earn, that's the, actually the other thing I wanted to mention relative to Snap. Um, I've been so it's no, it's no secret like you know uptick is is we're currently preparing to launch uh, the free to play version of of, of Axie Infinity, and we're working on some other Web three initiatives as well. We've been meeting with a lot of these networks to discuss like essentially how they're going to play with Web three games, play to earn games. It's all over the place right now, and I don't want to like call out anyone specific in a negative context right now. Um, but let's just say that some of the larger um, networks and platforms are playing less friendly with the space and uh, trying to keep the gates barred. Um, Snapchat has been one of the most forward-thinking groups um, as far as like their outreach to us to like work on Web three games. Um, they are uh, they acknowledge like the force that that play to earn games are going to be in the ecosystem and they want to actively support it. They are much more in like a, they've researched it more. They're much more coming from perspective of like, how can we help? How can we onboard these games to our platform? Um, and yeah, I think I am very bullish on Snap and kind of like this next era of uh, people moving, you know, we know that Facebook and Instagram's growth is user user base is shrinking for the first time in a while. And we know that TikTok is gaining a lot of that. I anticipate that Snap will also um, be a net gain uh, in like this next movement of people within, you know, from one social media platform to another. Agreed. Okay, well, as usual, our industry insight section went way over our, a lot of time limits. So let's move on to our main section, which we'll, we'll be talking about App Store optimization with our guest, Maggie. Maggie, will you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, where you work feature, and what you do there? Yeah, um, I'm Maggie, uh, originally from Hong Kong. I've been working at Feature for a couple of years already. Now I'm the ASO team lead uh, at Feature, overseeing a team, working for a lot of big clients, um, on their ASO project. Um, with a bit of my background, I have experience in the general marketing as traditional as like, you know, um, TV, et cetera, et cetera, even events, PR, up to digital marketing, um, pay ads, et cetera, et cetera. And now I focus on ASO and App Store optimization in particular. Awesome. So I think a lot of our audience will know what ASO is, but for those who don't, will you kind of explain to us sort of what uh, fundamentally what is ASO as a concept and why it's important? Mm -hmm. ASO is uh, app store optimization in the sense that we are doing whatever we can do in the app store to generate organic traffic. Now, um, if I go into detail, that could be a lot of things, but ultimately we want the app to be shown in front of relevant users and we try to convert them organically. And we also work with paid traffic because as, uh, when the more paid traffic you're attracting to the platform, we as ASO team or ASO managers, we will also help you to convert all these users into valuable um, users, paying for the app later on, or paying for the game later on. This is exactly what we're doing, creating organic tractions within the app stores. Cool, and, and Maggie, you know, the 
traditionally, like we on our team, we think of ASO as like kind of two distinct halves. Um, one being like the the keyword and discovery half of ASO, like mm -hmm. how how easy, how readily available is the app, uh, and the other being the store conversion page, like like you know, if someone actually finds the app, how likely are they to actual actually install. Um, internally at Feature, do you also think of it in those kind of like two separate distinct halves, or when when you're talking to a client about ASO, like what are what are the actual moving pieces that you're focusing on on working with them on? Usually, this is the point where we introduce the whole ASO stack, which is a lot of boxes pinpointing what you can do in ASO. But yes, we also go with two big paths. One is like what we call increasing visibility, including what you mentioned, like key optimization just to make sure that we have, we are appearing in all the user touch points, not only in the search results that occupy the majority of the traffic, that's for sure, but there are like different opportunities you can utilize, such as browse. A lot of users actually go into the App Store not knowing what they want, they browse the App Store, and there are a lot of things you can do to capture that traffic. The second part, as you mentioned, that will be more on the conversion. When users see it, you want to convert them. This is what we call increasing conversion. Then um, traditionally, a lot of people will be thinking about updating the screenshots, A-B testing, but they might be overlooking some core elements as well. And that um, we usually start with looking into all the elements we can look into App Store, and then we identify what can be optimized. Yeah, that's, so it's interesting. You talked about the, I mean, we talked, we're talking about the way that we, we tend to think about it. You talked about the ASO um, stack, you know, it sort of lined up on the questions I want to ask. Like, can you talk about what are, you know, we basically highlighted two, the search as well as on-page conversion. Can you walk us through the rest of that stack? What do you think of as all the components to run an effective ASO process? Yeah, definitely. So, because ASO, you can do a lot of things within an ASO RAM, but usually when you want to start with identifying what are your needs and what you want to do, and that shouldn't start with just thinking about ASO. You should start thinking about what your what you want to do with your app, what you want to do with the whole marketing strategy. A lot of people oversee, like, you know, we start with what keywords we can add to, what kind of screenshots we want to craft that shouldn't be your starting point. You should start thinking about pretty much like branding, like how you want to position your brand in front of a lot of users. Once you have it, you basically have different marketing goals, right? You don't set up a brand and it will be there. You might be, your goal will be interesting, uh, I don't know, increasing downloads. It could be increasing the revenue. It could be, no, I just want to enter a new market and see what happened over there. Right. So you identify your marketing goals and then you go with the rest, like more on the activities side. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of, more idea of questions here. My, my next thought is you dig into what are what are the sort of specifics of different activities and you know what are how do you sequence them and layer them together in order to drive increased performance from the app store? I think that hmm. yeah, like when what's your when your team actually is is working with the client to improve their ASO, like what is like what what does that attack look like from your team's <laughs> end? What pieces are they working on? Yeah, we usually start with what we call a, a health check audit because we know that a lot of users, generally speaking, a lot of users come from search. As simple as like adding keywords might bring you quite a lot of users already, but um, there might be apps being super optimized already. And that's why it's important for us to look into the overall health 
of the app. Maybe it's a conversion rate against the um, category benchmark. Maybe it's like, are you actually appearing in the right place that you should be appearing in the app store? So that would be pretty much like checking the KPIs against the category benchmark that we have, checking against like what that should look like for um, high performing app. And then we go down into, as you know, search will be the majority of the traffic. So we usually tackle that first. And that comes with, say, keyword optimization. And then you tackle conversion rate, doing A-B testing, make sure you have the best looking stylizing. And then you can go with like smaller topics, such as like browse traffic and um, a bit more touch points on ratings and reviews, et cetera, et cetera. For certain apps, it might be the other way around because they might have a very optimized metadata already. And then you want to go with um, a bit more on the conversion optimization. Note that if you're a gaming company, um, keyword optimization is actually not that effective. A lot of gamers, they do search, but there are a lot more conversion elements will affect the performance of the app. Mm. So the sequence will go in a different way you do conversion and you look into different things later. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's super interesting, Maggie. And and just to kind of chime in for, for our team's approach, because you know we also do ASO work here at Uptick. Um, one reason that we like talking to the feature team is we think they have a lot mm -hmm. of uh, expertise on the keywords side. Our, our focus here, like we, you know, we built some software that we've mentioned before that's like essentially like an automated suite of testing tools for conversion maximization. And um, We'll, we'll approach it from a similar way on our end. We do an audit, but more from like the store conversion side. Uh, we don't profess to be, you know, the, the in-depth expert of keywords as like a company of, of feature. Um, but what we'll do is like our creative team will essentially like, you know, do a bunch of competitive research and pull in data from a bunch of similar apps in the genre. And then also just do sort of an aesthetic audit of like, do you have like a clear user journey from your screenshots? Do you have clear calls to action? Um, are the icons following best practices and, and compelling? And from that, we'll usually develop um, uh, like a, a playbook of like, what are the key things? What's the low hanging fruit? Like, like what if we identify this most likely to, to increase conversion? We then produce those assets for them, put them through the testing tool, um, and then optimize the store page conversion that way. I think feature, we also do something similar. Um, we have, it depends on how, you know, the developers, they want to work with us. Mm -hmm. We also provide similar structure um, on various activities. We might not be as expert as you guys in terms of like massive testing playground with creatives. So we do more on the precise, like we look into user preference, we look into user persona, um, just to identify what we're doing. And especially like if you're going into the app uh, category instead of like the gaming category, so when we do um, testing, we also look into user persona. We also look into um, use case, what the users are looking at, what are their preference. Um, and then you come up with very precise like testing concepts, uh, especially for apps because uh, they're usually the user value propositions are just a couple of them. And you want to go with precise targeting rather than testing different design elements on the screenshots or creatives in general. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's one thing that's a sort of key takeaway is that you know, we, do, we do put a pretty heavy emphasis on the creative. Uh, we do a lot of game clients. The majority of our, our book of business is game clients. We do a lot of, uh, I mean, obviously test call to actions, but we do a lot of emphasis on creative visualization. And it makes sense that distinct apps, specifically non-gaming apps, we would have to, you really want to focus on precise uh, 
what are what are the precise value props what are the precise call to actions that um are sort of more resonant with the user journey i mean it, it is sort of an interesting distinction yeah a quick anecdote on there our end we we worked one of one of our clients that using our aso tool was one one of the largest companies in the the finance space um and one of the most effective tests for them was actually um they had multiple financial products and it was actually just which product they put at the forefront that was the the thing that was they first used to get uh users attention so like think of like is it better if it's like a, a lending product or a credit score product um most of these companies offer multiple things and they found there was a huge difference by just even though they do all these things what's the thing that we put at the forefront um and we don't see uh that's more about messaging whereas in gaming it's more about uh, how visually captivating uh are, are the assets you show interesting distinction yeah, um, Maggie, I have a question. I mean, as we know, Apple just rolled out their A-B testing tool. Um, how does that affect your, your workflow? Has it changed at all? Mm. Yeah, we actually adapted the uh, product page optimization and native A-B testing to quite early. When they rolled out, I think we also published a couple of articles about it. If you guys are interested, feel free to um, just search for feature ASO blog. We have everything there. Um, it, I think we, we also can link it in the blog as well. We'll link it in the podcast. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, the the product page optimization, initially everyone were very excited about this very first native testing tool. Uh, we immediately set up a couple of tests already just to see like how the tool can help us to improve conversion rate. Um, I have to say it's amazing in the sense that Apple, you know, made that move and we can actually start testing on App Store. However, we're also a bit disappointed at the yep. capability of yep. the yeah. tool. You guys probably noticed <laughs> yep, that, yep. right? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I understand that it might take them a little bit of time to improve and to catch up with um, Google. But indeed, um, previously, we were doing a lot of before after tests um, on App Store or maybe use, utilizing like the creative sets um, in Apple searches to justify uh, like what creatives we should put in there. Now, for most of our clients, we switch to the product page optimization. It takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit more planning stage we need to do, but at least we have solid results, like whether this screenshot is performing better than the other screenshot. And that's very helpful, I have to say. And, and Maggie, I, I really agree with both sides of what you said. I mean, it's so much better than nothing, which was, <laughs> <laughs> Apple's prior offering for the longest time. And for teams that are doing just very basic conversion uh, optimization, at least they can do something without having to uh, license a more powerful third-party tool. Um, but I'm curious to compare notes. You, you mentioned some frustrations for your team. What are, what are some of the areas where you think Apple's uh, A-B testing falls short? Um, a couple of things, especially, uh, I think the first one will be the reporting system because, mm -hmm. uh, Agreed. you know, yeah, especially I think it's very important for no matter that's games or for apps, localization is such an important element for us. You want to tailor make that experience for different users. Now, um, you can set up a couple of tests um, for different countries, it takes ages. But if you set up everything in one place, you cannot know is it the US user liking the screenshots or the UK users. So this is a bit frustrating. Localization is pretty much all of the window at this moment. Um, the second thing will be the, 
the setup of it, because you right. probably noticed that when you set up a new PPO, or we call it product-based optimization, um, if you have a new app release coming in, it stops a test right away. And imagine a gaming company, you have a lot of updates you need to do. You need to fix the bug. You need to add new layers to your game. Yeah. And that just stop whatever we are doing on the ASOS side is not that pleasant. And it's difficult to plan out, you know, the long-term strategy because of it. Yeah, so the just assets to... need to be included in the binary, right? Right. Like... <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it's, uh, it's a lot of work, I have to say. They could have made it a bit more easier for everyone. Right. It's it's so tied to the development cycles, which is something that's very frustrating. Yeah, you, you mentioned that it will like preemptively end these tests. But yeah, even if we were shocked that just to test um, new icons that we had to like, you know, basically ask our developers to ship a new build with the icons in the binary, uh, no reason it has to be that, that complex. Um, yeah, that, that all makes sense. We share those same frustrations, Maggie. And what we've found for, for our ASO clients is if we're doing something very basic, like just we have this basic screenshot A-B test, it's very suitable and um, you don't have to you know use the extra budget needed if you're using a, a testing tool like the uptick testing tool. Um, mm -hmm. But there are certain cases where we're still definitely needing to use a third party tool like ours um, besides some of the limitations you mentioned one huge case that i hope apple accommodates is you can't test the promo image um the promo image is like for those less familiar with aso is like that that real estate at the top of the store page that you don't see for every app it's kind of mysterious i'm sure you know all about how it works maggie but a lot of developers don't so i'll give a like quick psa here like it's huge real estate it's the first thing at the top of the page and there's a good chance if you're an app of a meaningful size, you can use that real estate. You just have to ask your rep at Apple. There's not like a UI to do it. Um, and it's a, it's a very manual process. So we do a ton of testing for that space in the uptick tool because Apple doesn't accommodate it. And um, we found it's often one of the things that affects conversion the most because it's this huge thing at the top of the page. And, and a lot of companies don't have any strategy for actually implementing and testing that. Indeed, indeed. And that is frustrating because you cannot, even if you have that space for your app, you cannot update it as frequent as you want. Correct. Apple might just reach out every single year asking, do you want to update that? If you miss that chance, you will need to wait for another year or so. And it's correct. Hmm. <laughs> All the more reason that you want to test it first and be very confident when you ask that. Yeah, because they don't like changing that frequently. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, we've talked a bit about our tool um, more, and I, Maggie, I wanted to understand what is the tool chain you guys use in order to do your app store optimization testing? Because obviously, this is something that you need. There's quite a few different components here, and I imagine you have a whole suite of tools that you employ to do some testing. And maybe, yeah. Maggie, you can also you can also elaborate. I know um, one great thing about features, you guys publish a lot of materials mm, um, yeah. on the ASO mm -hmm. space, probably more than any other company. Mm -hmm. um, and you follow a lot of a lot of different tech. So, like my my, what I've seen from your team, correct me if I'm wrong, is you use sort of a combination of different tech and partners based on what you think is going to best meet mm -hmm. your client's goal, rather than being tied to one solution. Is is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We have um, a whole set of tools that we use uh, for various topics. So, for example. Uh, we use AppTweak for key optimization. Right. We know we have tested a couple of tools. We think they are the best and the easiest to use. And then we have Sensor Tower for market intelligence. I think the numbers that they have are very accurate um, comparing all the tools that we have. And a couple of them, we have been using AppBoard um, for ratings and reviews, you name it. 
we do use a combination of um, tools that also ties back to you know what our clients are using as well because if they're looking tracking their performance in certain tools we also want to help them to understand is it good is it accurate do you want to switch etc etc and nevertheless we also build in-house tool to um, help our consultants at the end of the day, the tools, uh, whatever we use, they provide raw information to us, like what's the keyword ranking for certain things. But, um, and that's why we build like in-house tools to help us to make decision on like turning those raw data into insights where we can share with among consultants, discussing trends, discussing patterns in order to provide a strategic opinion to our clients, how you should work on certain things in order to achieve your goal. And that's why we need a lot of tools comparing different data and still building in-house tool where we also share um, in our ASO blog, we share quite a lot of spreadsheet, um, pretty automated, automated, pretty easy to use. I know quite a lot of people do use them um, uh, in their own work. And I'm very, I will encourage everyone to just check out our blog and see if you can find one or two spreadsheets that will help you to do your day-to-day -day work. Yeah, I, I encourage everyone as well, even if you're not uh, ready or looking to hire a company to help you with ASO, um, the feature team just publishes a lot of good uh, content on this. I almost said conference, which is another good thing to mention. I know um, you guys were, I, I believe that Pioneers are the first ASO focused con conference, is that right? Yes, we have done the very first ASO conference all about ASO. We haven't, um, we invited a lot of different companies to it. No matter that's from the publisher side, uh, we have Adobe, we have um, different big names to be there talking about how they manage ASO and how ASO, um, what are the impact that they see from ASO. And then on the other side, we also invite uh, third party tools um, to just you know, illustrate how they can, how users in general can subtract insights from their tool. And with all this information, you know, is a good way for you to start understanding ASO, see the benefit of it, maybe trying out a little bit like one or two tricks, capturing the low hanging fruit and, you know, see what, is there something you want? Do you want to invest in there before you even make a decision? Right. That makes sense. Uh, we're getting a little close to time. So I guess as a, as a final question, what are some key takeaways for someone who's looking for some of those low hanging fruits that you just talked about? So if you're basically, if you're starting from zero, you've never done ASO optimization before, maybe you're relatively mm -hmm. new to the marketing space. What are the first few things you can do that can you some tangible wins in the short term? I would say go and check what your competitors are doing. A lot of time they are doing the right thing. As simple as like adding a relevant keyword to your metadata that could bring you 20% uplift in terms of installs. So do look into that. You don't need a tool for it. Just look around what they're doing and don't um, be restricted by what you know. You might think that this keyword be, is useful because that is what your brand stands for. However, most of the time you have to think about what the users are thinking right. about your brand instead of what you are thinking. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thanks. That's, uh, that's, that's very interesting. I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through your thinking around ASO. Warren, uh, any final thoughts before we move on to wrap of the week? Uh, just that it's it's just one one reason we love the feature team is uh, they're really like thought leaders in the space. Like you can tell just by things like the content they produce and the ASO conference. Um, kind of similar to our own philosophy, we 
we believe, uh, as we think the feature team does, of just like bringing smart people together, like having a conversation about these areas, learning from each other, uh, and I've always appreciated that about the feature team's approach. So definitely um, a team that we recommend reaching out to for help with ASO. Thank awesome. you so much. Yeah, and I do invite everyone to join the ASO app to you know keep track of our ASO blog, subscribe to our newsletter, join our ASO Slack channel. We are here to provide our expertise. We don't close doors and just keep the knowledge in-house. We want to share that with everyone just so everyone can do the same thing we do here at Feature. And sorry, I have one more important comment I want to make about ASO. A big uh, low-hanging fruit and oversight that I see people doing is don't launch your app and then start ASO like six months later. Um, like you think about it, like so much of the marketing spend and so much of the uh, success future success on the app depends on the launch. And then again and again, I see that developers don't start ASO until they're like six months past launch. And then it's like, oh, it's not doing as good as we want. Maybe we should start ASO. It's like, you just put millions of users at the top of your funnel. Like, why don't, why not like make it convert well before you do that and optimize your keywords before you do that. So I just wanted to put that as another mm -hmm. reason to, you know, care about ASO early too, besides, you know, just caring about it at all. Indeed, indeed. Think about ASO when you already think about the app idea. When you build your apps, think about what the exactly. marketing you want to do. Awesome. Cool. So let's move on to our last section, app of the week. Maggie, did you bring an app this week? Yes, I am bringing you Wordle. Uh, you guys probably also noticed that really amazing game, right? Oh, yeah. Phenomenon I play, lately, I, yeah. I play Wordle every day. Got a 93% yeah. convert like win rate. So, yeah. Oh, that's impressive. That's impressive. I, I love this game is that not only, and it's amazing, like such a simple game can be so influential among all the users. People are playing it, people are talking about it, how it's so much about Wordle in the social media and people sharing it across different age groups. And it's just amazing how they turn, how you know, New York Times turned such a simple game into a very vital um, at, in a very short time of period. And you can see how people are connected to each other just by one little game. Yeah, it's really interesting. A couple, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, it was basically a single developer, I believe, originally. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he got bought right for a million dollars. So, I mean, good for him. Just really quickly. Yeah, the, the legend mm -hmm. is that he made it uh, as a way to entertain his girlfriend, right? Or his fiance. I need ways to entertain my girlfriend that'll give me a million dollars. Um, anyway, so, uh, and then... <laughs> I think here's here's the thing the thing that's most interesting is it just talks about how important virality and like non-paid user acquisition can be. I mean, this is just the perfect example of how building the the correct viral loop can just become a phenomenon, even though the game mechanics aren't that uh, critical. And it's really like the virality that's almost the game more than the game itself. So it's like a really interesting uh, just little little thing. Cool. Any other thoughts about Wordle? No. Cool. Well, then, Morin, uh, what's your app this week? Yeah, so so mine is also uh, kind of in the theme of simple is is often best, um, but it's kind of from a different angle. So my app of the week is I think a rerun, uh, but for a different reason, which is Coinbase. Um, so why did I why did I use Coinbase in the last week? Uh, well, it was the Super Bowl, right? So um, I think arguably I, I was trying to find some data on this, but I would be shocked if just from a uh, user acquisition standpoint, the Coinbase ad was not the most effective ad of the Super Bowl. Um, for anyone who didn't see it, it, everyone else was doing these big budget, like, you know, have Hollywood actors, uh, you know, multi-million dollar commercial productions. 
Coinbase just had a simple QR code in fluorescent colors bouncing around the screen with chiptune music behind it. And there was no text on screen at all, just a QR code with music behind it. And as soon as it popped up, I like, I didn't know what it was for. I scrambled to get my phone. I shot the QR, QR code and it, it you know, prompted me to open up Coinbase. And um, they, they were offering like, I think like a incentive for new users and then a raffle for, uh, for all users. Um, but uh, I just really appreciate it from a marketer's perspective, really. Um, and it shows that like, you don't need to make the highest budget, most polished ad to have the most effective. You just need something that that has A, intrigue, and B, a strong call to action. And this was uh, a masterclass in both of those things. And, you know, probably had a production, could have had a production budget of $20. Um, so it was just super cool to see uh, that as uh, really a standout Super Bowl ad. Also, the other thing is like, how does your ad look compared to all of the other ads surrounding it? And I think they made that knowing that what the kind of ads that everyone else makes around the Super Bowl. And if we just do something like super sim simple and minimalistic, it's going to really stand out. So yeah, uh, do, do you all have thoughts? Did you see that ad? Did you watch the Super Bowl commercials? Do you have any thoughts, Maggie? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a it's a very interesting idea. It's like um, this is another example of not doing what your competitors are doing, right? Stand out a month, doing something very special. And it's a very smart move. I'm very curious how they convince their you know marketing team get that approved, spending that budget, that big budget on a very simple design of ads, but they're successful, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so some metrics that I I think it was like in Robin Hood podcast this came through. What I heard is that I had 20 million page views or like it, people who would scan the code, 20 million, and then their app jumped from 146 in the app store to number two. And so, I mean, that's like the, basically that's the best amazing. ROI of every of any ad ever. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible. Yeah, another thing I wanted to call out about the Super Bowl ads this year, one reason that I watch, I, I, I don't give a crap about football, sorry sorry for all the football fans out there, but I, I watch from a marketer's perspective, right? Um, and one thing I always watch for is the games that are marketing during the Super Bowl. Um, that's usually pretty important for our industry. There was, I double checked, there was zero games that advertised during the Super Bowl this year. Um, what we did see was EVs and crypto. Those were by far the two dominating categories. So I think that's just a super interesting kind of meta trend um, about what that's saying about like the current bullishness of 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 this generation of, of games. And I thought that was also pretty interesting this year. You heard it first here, games are dead. That's what Warren just said. <laughs> Xander, do you have a dead game to talk to us about this week? I do. So, you know, I do app, we do mobile apps all the time, um, but I've like, I figured I'd do, I go a little boomer this time. I almost did Steam because Steam is a platform I bought this game on. Um, but uh, so anyway, so, I think the, the game I'm talking about this week is called Disco Elysium, and it's like a psychological thriller RPG, and it is just incredible. It is like a masterclass in what it means to be an RPG. They have um, it has awesome art and uh, really interesting and unique setting, uh, great mechanical like narrative coherence. So that is to say, the mechanics of the game reinforce the story of the game. Uh, great voice acting. It's really one of those games that like when you take a step back, it's an RPG at its core, um, but mostly focused on dialogue. There's basically no violence in it. Oh, there's a little violence, but very minimal violence uh, in terms of the gameplay mechanics. Um, but it really expands the horizon of like what it means to be an RPG. And like I, I'm I, about 12 hours in, I think it's about 25 hours total. I really can't recommend this game highly enough. Super Boomer, the opposite of Crypto, the opposite of Mobile, but just like a medium, a, a team in its medium doing incredible work. So definitely to check out Disco Elysium. It's really, really good. Any thoughts about weird boomer games? 
I'm sure that sounds super fun. I, I, I do want to check it out <laughs> for sure. All right. Um, well, that brings us to the end. Um, Maggie, if someone, thank you so much for joining us. If anyone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about feature, where can they do that? Yeah, you can go to the um, feature.com, P H I T U R E.com if you want. And then anything you just search for, ASO stack, ASO Slack, you can easily just reach out to us. Awesome. Sweet. More, anyone take us out? For sure. So thanks everyone for joining uh, again. As usual, the podcast was brought to you by the team at Uptick. So this week, I'll just touch quickly on a little bit more about Uptick's own ASO work. So as we mentioned, we have the Uptick uh, ASO automation tool, really focused on maximizing your store page conversion. Um, people, we have we have clients that use that both they license the tool themselves and run their own tests through that, uh, or they have us work in a more like full stack capacity where we're also like developing all of the creatives and and doing the strategy for uh, conversion optimization. So just to call out a few of the companies we work with on the ASO front, uh, Rovio, Zynga, Wizards of the Coast, um, Experian, some of the, the companies we've been fortunate enough to work with on that side. So uh, yeah, I think hopefully in this cast, you've got two interesting companies to talk to if you want to reach out about ASO. We definitely recommend uh, Maggie and the feature team, <laughs> true masters in the field. And you can always reach out to the Uptick team also at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon.